This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. I want to get into what uh, I thought was a fascinating uh, issue yesterday that was brought up at, uh, at one of the committee meetings at City Hall. A pitch was put forward yesterday before council to turn the booking responsibility for Tim Hortons Field over to Spectra. Now, that's that agency that does the booking for First Ontario Place. It's Cops Coliseum, whatever you want to call it, and, of course, for Hamilton Place. Uh, it's interesting because, obviously, these are people that are experts in that field, but there seemed to be some opposition to it on the committee level anyway yesterday. Chad Collins is the counselor for Ward 5 out in the east end of the city. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Good morning, Chad. How are you today? I'm doing well, Bill, and yourself? Good, good. Listen, uh, just to, as a, a preamble to this, I mean, you know, the the, the, the stadium's up there. I don't want to get into the litigation between the city and everyone else there. That's something that hopefully is going to be resolved. But I, I think the frustration a lot of people are feeling right now, Chad, is not about that, but about the fact that that thing sits empty an awful lot of the time, and there is the potential to make money there. It, it, it does, and, and there is potential, as you know, Bill. And, and um, you know, historically, stadiums certainly haven't been as successful a venue as arenas and, and other facilities along those lines. Um, you know, through the 70s and maybe into the 80s, we witnessed a lot of... Uh, of um, uh, music groups, um, you know, tour North America, and, and there was sort of that stadium circuit that they were on. And it seemed that into the 90s and beyond, um, most of those um, high-profile events found their way uh, into arenas and other types of venues like large convention centers. And so, um, you know, any municipality that has an outdoor stadium has been forced to find unique ways and means in which to fill the seats when the prime tenant is not playing a game and in this case it's the tie cats and so we've always had our challenges to to find um you know someone to to play or, or even to just to use the facility if it's not a concert and and of course we had our own internal issues where you know we had a long-standing unwritten rule that we weren't going to have outdoor concerts after some of the high profile ones caused some problems for the neighbors in the 70s Th- those things are, are well behind us we have a policy now that says we want to fill the stadium um, not just outside, but we have a lot of recreational amenities and meeting rooms inside the stadium for indoor events as well. And so we've tried over the last number of years, especially with the new stadium, with the new amenities, to find ways and means in which to utilize the building to offset the cost to taxpayers. And we've been relatively successful. I was going to say, you obviously get updates on that about uh, money that's being generated. I mean, I've attended, I've, I've emceed a few events that have been held mm-hmm. inside the stadium, not on the field itself, but in those rooms. So th- that's got to be happening. Is it happening enough? It, it's not, and, and that's why we had the report yesterday. We, Aside from the, the issue that we're talking about, we've challenged our staff uh, two budget cycles ago to aggressively go out and find new revenue sources for the city in all areas. And so we've seen some reports come forward that talked about you know, advertising opportunities. We've capitalized on those. And, uh, and this is one of those files, that I think, that have been given to our revenue generation department. And, um, and they've gone off and done some research and, and presented a case to us yesterday that said instead of internally booking this with a contract employee, um, that we would go out and hire Spectra, who has international experience in booking uh, small, medium, and large type of events uh, for facilities and municipalities across not just Canada, but but the world. And uh, they have a proven track record. And so the, the proposal was to draw on their expertise to allow them as a pilot project to take over for the contract employee that we have, and to be fair to the employee, whoever it is, and I don't know who they are, um, their their job was simply uh, to provide an intake service, so they weren't out beating the bushes trying to find um, uh, you know someone to rent the facility. They were 
recording those people who called or corporations who called in to ask for the facility. They had other job duties in addition to that. Um, but the proposal we had yesterday was a little bit different. It said that um, the, the contract employee's position is up, and there's an opportunity to draw on the expertise of, of Spectra, who, as you noted in the opening of the show, uh, provide those same services uh, for the uh, First Ontario Centre and the uh, Hamilton Place uh, facility. And so that the the committee had, a, I think, a very good debate around the benefits of that. There was a, uh, a request to hold this off for community consultation. So it's been delayed, uh, I believe, about a month. Uh, and uh, in about a month's time, that report will be back in front of us. And, and I, I really don't see a downside to this. I, I'm all for community consultation, but I, I'm not certain what the opposition would be in light of the fact that we provide, and it's guaranteed in our contract with the Ticats, the city has hundreds and hundreds of hours at its uh, disposal to use for not just city events, but for community events. And and as far as I know from the information we received yesterday and have in the past, that uh, system and contract has worked fairly well. Let's back up a little bit and talk a little about Spectra themselves. It's it's been a few years now. Let's let's talk about their track record now. And as you mentioned, some years ago, uh, the council just decided to blow up the Hecvi board and and take the the management of that facility in in a much more hands on basis. And mm-hmm. part of that included hiring this company uh, to do these things uh, on a personal level. Chad, are, are you are you pleased with the work that Spectra has done uh, since they've taken over the 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 management of the arena and and of course of Hamilton Place? Yeah, I think they've done a good job. I mean, um, I, I think the numbers, and I, I don't have a comprehensive list in front of me, Bill, but from the last time I talked to our staff, they've, they've definitely improved upon the numbers, I think, that HECFI have or had historically provided to us. So the ticket sale numbers, and we usually gauged it in the past for non-sporting event um, type of uh, bookings. So whether it was HECFI or, or the new Spectra uh, contract uh, corporation, um, you know, they always had guaranteed bulldog nights. And so we take those off the chart and we start to look at then the unique booking events that might be concerts or conventions and those types of things. And uh, and they've done fairly well in that regard. And, and in 2016, I think yesterday's report illustrated that they had sold about um, 140,000 or plus uh, tickets for the calendar year 2016, which would ex- exclude sporting events. And um, and so they've done relatively well, and and we're one of the top 200 arenas in the world, I believe. Yesterday's report had advised, um, and we're the, I think the 10th busiest arena in Canada when you when you take out sporting events, and and that's a challenge. I mean, that's that's a very unique niche market. There, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, there's a number of municipalities, and we have some pretty big giants around us, including the city of Toronto that we're competing against, and so it's great to have someone like Spectra who has you know, a, a, a booking uh, part of their organization that is funneling these types of special events through other arenas, uh, not just here in southern Ontario, but in Canada, North America, and across the world. So to have those contacts is very beneficial. And then to draw on that expertise for the stadium, I think, uh, you know, hopefully would would prove to be just as successful as they have been with the other indoor facilities that they manage for us. I mean, and, of course, there's, there's the revenue aspect as well. Sure. It's not just about generating ticket sales. At the end of the day, we're hoping to generate revenues. Those revenues come in the form of a revenue-sharing agreement from the rentals, and and most importantly for many of these um, buildings, it's the food and beverage where where you make a a lot of your uh, your profit. So that that is important, and uh, and they've been successful at that as well. 
Uh, I didn't go to the Pink Floyd concert in the 70s, uh, <laughs> although just about everyone else in the city seems to think that they were there. Maybe yeah. they were. I don't know or thought well, they were there. I was born that year, so, so. <laughs> I definitely wasn't there. Uh, but I did go to the first one at Tim Horton Field. I went to the Keith Urban uh, Darius Rucker concert, and the arena or the, the stadium wasn't even finished by then. As mm-hmm. you call it, the upper uh, level wasn't even done, so you, you couldn't have people up there. But uh, as much as it was sold out with the seats that were available, I mean, it was a great night. And there was an expectation, I think, at that time that, hey, this is really going to be great. Uh, and I'm, I'm assuming there's probably going to be a pushback from some neighbors. They're going to say, well, we don't want the noise. But that's been going on since about 1930 when they put the stadium there in the first place. And right. I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. But at the same time, there's a stadium there. And, and we, I guess, as a community have to acknowledge the fact that, uh, that we can use that uh, much more than we're using it right now. And that's going to include concerts. But the reality, Chad, is this. And you sat on the HECFI board and have been affiliated with this for a long time as a counselor. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not going to be a concert every week anyway. I mean, they, they just don't come along that often, but you want to be uh, able to, I guess, to be able to uh, book them when they're there. I mean, you know, the, the Garth Brooks aren't going to come to the arena every night, just like, uh, you know, Keith Urban's not going to come to Tim Hortons Field every night. But there are some acts that tour in the summer, and they do prefer outdoor facilities. Yeah, that's a great point. And yesterday's report um, gave us an indication of what we might expect to see with Spectra. And, and they're, they've hinted, and, and I don't know if it's a guaranteed promise, but what they're looking at an additional three around three mid to large size events so you're you're absolutely right it's not something we're going to see every night of the week and it's not something we're going to see on a weekly basis and let's not forget that when the best weather is 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 upon us the tie cats are using the facility so it can be a little bit difficult to um to try to manage bookings around their schedule because you really have to time it right if they're if a group is making their way through southern ontario and it's a week where the tie cats are in town and they're practicing then, you know, the stadium's off limits. And, and so staff mentioned that there were three weeks, I believe, this year where the stadium was, would be free and clear. And, um, and those would be the opportunities and weeks, I think, that Spectre would like to capitalize on. And at the end of the day for us this year, I mean, it's, it's not a huge sum of money when we look at a billion-dollar budget, but it, we're looking at about a $40,000 savings uh, to the good. And if we were to continue this relationship through 2019 for a full calendar year, we're looking at about 150,000, I believe the report said. So it's, you know, and, and who knows where that leads to? If that's the minimum savings, then that's a great head start. And then staff have accomplished what they set out to do, which was to help us generate some revenues at a city facility. And, um, and I would anticipate that if this pilot program is successful, we'd most likely see, see Bill that, that when the contract expires for First Ontario Centre and Hamilton Place, that uh, Iverwin would be most likely included in that contract uh, proposal and call when private sector entities bid on it in the future. How uh, hands-on, how prescriptive is council going to try to be if you do go down this road, Chad? I can remember some attempts to do this at, at, with the old Iverwin Stadium, and, mm-hmm. and some of the councillors said, well, okay, but we don't want heavy metal. We don't want, and, and, and really kind of tying the hands of, of whoever at that time it was going to be Heckfire, I think, that was going to try to do some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But but well, do you simply turn yeah. it over to these guys and simply say whatever you guys can do to make it work? Or, or are we going to get uh, you know analytical about this? Well, I don't think we're ever going to lose the footloose scenario where, you know, when a certain group comes to town, you know, there are people who are up in arms. I remember the Marilyn Manson. Oh, yeah. They might have been on council at that time, and Marilyn Manson came through, and there were groups saying he can't play here. So that part of it will always be with us. But uh, I think we need to provide as much flexibility as possible to the private sector as long as we create certain parameters within the contract that protect the community, as you've referenced, um, as long as we give the community an indication as to how often these type of events might occur, then I, I think, um, you know, then, then we've accomplished what we set out to do, and that is to maximize 
the use of a city facility that we've invested a lot of money into, and uh, and we provide protection for those neighbors who are certainly inconvenienced from time to time, whether it be a TICAC game or other special events. But as long as the safety net's in place through contractual language, and we've been successful certainly with other facilities in doing the same, uh, I think you could look at Festival of Friends and those types of facilities that draw large numbers to the same area of the city. Um, you, you know, we'll always have some hiccups and hurdles to deal with, it, and nothing's perfect. But in this instance, I think it just makes complete sense to go along this path and draw upon the private sector expertise who have a proven track record, not just in Hamilton, but elsewhere. If this were to happen, and again, as you say, there's going to be some public consultation and staff are going to come back to you guys on this. Do you anticipate that uh, that this is uh, something that they can look forward to, for instance, for this coming summer season, or, or is it that a little too optimistic? No, I think with the delay, we're probably looking at um, taking a, a month or a month and a half off the calendar year for them. I, I believe that the report said that they were hoping that um, we would have this relationship and contract in place in February. That's probably now bunched, or bumped sorry, to March or April, but they would have it till the end of this year, and certainly with it being an election year, the new council um, um, getting up and running at the end of the year, it, it, it's probably into 219. And so, yeah, they, uh, as soon as uh, we receive public um, delegations, I'm not sure for certain who's going to come forward, as I mentioned earlier, but uh, as soon as that uh, is out of the way and barring any unforeseen um, issues that we haven't thought about or debated, uh, then I, I see them up and running early in the year and us taking advantage of those savings uh, as part of the 218 budget process. I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the thing between the city and the Tiger Cats and and, and uh, Infrastructure Ontario. Now, I know you can't do any negotiations mm-hmm. out in public, and I, I respect that, obviously. But do, have you had any updates at all, and, and are you optimistic that that thing's going to get settled sooner than later? Uh, we haven't received anything recently, and of course, you know, the holiday uh, break, uh, Christmas break, um, Things kind of wind down for a bit, and now they're just winding up, and we're into the budget season. So I, I, I we haven't heard anything lately, but I'm, I'm optimistic that at some point in time, all those, all parties that are involved are going to uh, come to a resolution that's satisfactory to everyone. I'm hoping that's the case. I mean, we can only be optimistic, and I treat it as a, a glass half full uh, scenario because um, you know we all have the interests of the taxpayer at heart, and we have a facility I think we can be proud of today. We can look at it, although we had all kinds of issues with it at the start. Um, you know, when I've been to the facility there with thousands of other people, uh, people seem to enjoy themselves, and um, and it's a good experience. And hopefully, with the issue we're talking about today added to the TICAT uh, games that um, bring so much, um, you know, entertainment to the city, uh, I hope that, you know, for decades to come, this is going to be a facility that we're proud of, and the legal issues and wranglings and financial issues that we've been dealing with become just a footnote in the story of what is to come for this uh this venue. I'd love to see that happen sooner than later. Here's hoping. Anyway, Chad, thanks for the update. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks, Bill. Chad Collins, the counselor for Ward 5. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Have you ever uh, watched city council or streamed city council meetings or attended one of them at one time or another? Obviously, it might be an issue that was of concern to you or your neighborhood or something. One of the the common complaints we often hear, of course, is how long-winded city councillors are and uh, how long the meetings are because of the long-winded city councillors. And, uh, you know, they will go back and forth on an issue. Well, one of the great paradoxes, I suppose, was yesterday when council spent an inordinate amount of time debating about trying to do something about how long the meetings were. <laughs> so, uh, and it, this really comes down to putting time limits on how long they're allowed to speak at these meetings, whether it's a, a committee meeting or certainly at the council meetings themselves. 
Well, Councillor Donna Skelly, the Councillor for Ward 7 up in the Central Mountain, addressed the issue, and she wants to once again impose a five-minute time limit. And technically, I guess that's already in place, although you'd never know it if you attended a meeting. Donna joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, bring us up to speed on what's happening here. Hi, Donna. How are you doing today? I'm great. Good morning. Why can't you everybody be as brief as you just were there? <laughs> At council, you've been here. You know it's impossible. <laughs> it, well, it is impossible. And, you know, I can, when I was in the late 1990s when I was on city council, uh, and they did some renovations, so we had to go meet at the convention center. You guys have been there, done that. Council's had to do that a few times when things have had to be done at the city hall there. But when they reinstituted the the, the, the meetings there, and they had this brand new system, and they said, and, and guess what? There's actually a, 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 a situation in place here with the, the, the sound system at the, in the city chambers where after five minutes your microphone will be shut off and you can't speak. And we thought, that's great. What a way to do this. And as you see, and, and it happened the very first time somebody ran past five minutes, the very first day we went back in there, all they did was just hit the microphone on again and kept going and rambling and rambling and rambling. It's very tedious. It's very frustrating to watch, and it's very frustrating for fellow counselors, to be frank. It's also very expensive when you think that we're tying up staff who are sitting behind us waiting to address an issue. They're there because uh, something within their department is on the agenda, and they have to wait and wait and wait. Yesterday was a typical GIC day. GIC, for for your listeners, stands for a General Issues Committee, and it's, as you know, uh, a day that we deal with various issues before it goes to council. We began our meeting at 9.30 and finished uh, 5.30. And that was just a typical GIC. And some counselors can tie up over an hour in, in meetings. In fact, we, we, I won't say who, but we, we actually tied Oh, I it. think we know who. Uh, and and it's, if, you, if every one of us took an hour, we would never leave city council. So think about how much it cost taxpayers as staff waited. The um, members from Electra had a meeting following our GIC. We, we dealt with some issues at Electra. And they waited from 11 in the morning until 5.30 to make their presentation. That's a lot of time for five or six highly paid people to make a presentation to council because we can't get through our agenda in an efficient, um, respectful manner. Well, it's, it's, it's not just the staff time, and that's not insignificant. You're absolutely right, Donna. But, I mean, when, when I sat on planning committee, and, and we, all counselors have attended those meetings from time to time, because that was some pretty contentious stuff, because it affects neighborhoods. And, and so Mr. and Mrs. Smith or whomever was, would go to that meeting because they wanted to either be a delegation or at least hear what's going on. Well, you have to pay to park at City Hall. And the meeting was started at 930, and you basically sat there for six hours and listened to counselors flap their gums about everything. And you, I, I'd see these people having to leave the meeting and run out, and i got to go put more money in the meter. It costs them a, a ton of money to just sit there and listen before their issue even comes up. And a lot of time. People are taking time off work to yeah. have their, their issue addressed, to make their, their point, and to address counsel. And they are restricted to five minutes. And yet, and this motion, which barely passed at this level, it, uh, in a vote of eight to seven, um, was simply to restrict a counselor from exceeding five minutes when asking one question. So it doesn't mean that the dialogue can't exceed five minutes. It didn't take into consideration the response. It allowed a person to continue to, you can go on for 16 hours if you want, back and forth as long as there is a, an ongoing dialogue with a delegate or with staff or a fellow counselor. But even just 
restricting one question or comment to five minutes, there was pushback. Five minutes, as you know, being in broadcasting is a lot of time. And, and if you can't explain what you want to say, if you can't make a, um, a point or ask a question within five minutes, then you really have to step back and think, what is wrong? Why can't I articulate this message better? Because five minutes is a tremendous amount of time. Well, do you see the dynamic that goes on? And, and, and it, I think we do need to be critical about this, because I know some of the counselors' uh, responses yesterday were, well, this is a democracy, and we want to get the information out, and our constituents deserve to get this, yada, yada, yada. But you can still do that efficiently, and you can do that within five minutes. But but what will happen is is Councillor Skelly will say something, and then Councillor so-and-so wants to react to what Councillor Skelly said, and then Councillor Skelly wants to respond to what they, they just said, and back and forth. You're not even on the topic anymore. It, and we, it, it doesn't happen to a great extent with some individuals, but there are some who are guilty of that on a pretty consistent basis. Uh, the reality here, and you and I have talked about this on past programs, Donna, is it really should be up to whoever is chairing the meeting to be able to control that sort of thing, but nobody, nobody will ever do that to a fellow counselor because they're wanting to think, hey, when they're in the chair and I have to speak, I don't want anybody stopping me. But five minutes is a tremendous amount of time. I mean, that, you know, again, back in broadcasting, and, and look at, look at our, our, uh, our electronic devices. I think you get three or four or five seconds now to make a point and to grab someone's attention. So can you imagine you've lost, you've lost any sort of impact that you've had if you've hit the four-minute mark. People have completely drifted off. They're not listening. So that extra minute or those extra two minutes are really wasted time, and they really are. They're wasted time because you're not I, – I don't think that at that point a message is being – is resonating. But the other thing, and, and you alluded to this, is not just a rebuttal to a comment, but people who step out of a room and then ask the same question that had just been asked. So there's a, this continuation of, you know, of wasting time. Our meetings are far too long really too long. Now, I'm not talking about issues like the LRT when you've got delegates that are, you know, crammed 30 or 40 or 50 people that want to speak. That's different. But on an ongoing basis, a, just a, an, um, a weekly meeting shouldn't last as long as they do. And I think that we could expedite them and make it far more efficient, more interesting and more engaging to constituents if we would simply respect the fact that not everybody wants to hear us talk. Well, let's talk about those meetings with delegations, whether it's LRT, whether it's a contentious planning issue. It could be any number of things. And anybody who's ever served on city council has experienced those. And if you've got a list with 15 or 20, and, and we've had meetings like that with that many delegations that want to come forward, and, and whoever's chairing the meeting is always quite uh, explicit at the beginning saying, you know, you, the public, you have five minutes, and we're going to cut you at five minutes, so you better be efficient with your time. But then... After that person finishes the five-minute uh, speech, whatever it's going to be, you get counselors asking them questions. That's not what those meetings are supposed to be for, but these are counselors that just love to hear themselves talk, and they want to start debating with members of the public about that. Do that on your own time. Call them later. Why are you taking up valuable staff time? Yeah, I, I agree, and it's, it's perhaps performing to the media. I Do you think a little bit? I think so, and I think Councillor Green really mentioned that yesterday, that there are a lot of the work can be done offline. Some of it, I do believe, should be done in a public setting because information needs to be on the public record. That's very important, and I do, I do believe in that. And I do think that as a, as a counselor, you should 
have an opportunity to voice your opinion and to address your constituents, etc. But a five-minute com- uh, time limit, again, is, is it's an incredible amount of time. And if people actually perhaps looked at and watched um, their performance, they might understand that um, it could have been done in a much more uh, efficient and effective way and, and much briefer. But we don't, and we monopolize the microphone. So it was, it, it did, I had no intention of actually moving it yesterday. It was a notice of motion. It was actually uh, Councilor Marilla who said, let's, let's just test it. And, and it went through, and I wasn't expecting, um, I really wasn't expecting it to pass. And um, so it, and it did. So we'll see what happens moving forward. It's going to be quite interesting. We have a new uh, technology at, at City Hall, and one of the reasons why we were in the um, uh, convention center just prior to Christmas, they were installing it. We have new cameras, which are much better, and a new system that monitors people and shows you how much, how long you've been. It, it, it times us how long we've been speaking. That can be made public and can be made public within the chamber and also on our, our live streaming, so that perhaps may be an opportunity if we keep reminding councillors how long they've been speaking, that they may um, shut up and move on. Well, and let's let's get into some of the theatrics, and you as, as well as I know that that's an awful lot of what's wrong with the, the way that these meetings are run, is that the councillors, because of the fact that it's being live streamed now, or because of the fact that it may be on Cable 14, they perform. And, and you see this at the council meetings. And I, I know it goes on all the time now at the committee meetings because they're live streamed. But, I mean, back in my day, it was just the council meetings, uh, the official council meetings that were televised. And councillors would actually, they decide, what question am I going to ask staff today? And they go over the reports. And they would do it simply because they wanted camera time. And it's a f- waste of freaking time to do this. I, listen, I, I've sat beside a couple of councillors in my time on council that would actually go over the agenda and, uh, and it would say, okay, we're going to build a, a play structure and it's going to be blue. And the counselor would say, so, so let me get this straight now. Is, is, this is going to be blue? Is, what, what kind of blue? These are ridiculous questions, but it's FaceTime on the camera. And, it's, it's, and they, they'll go back to their constituents and say, here I am working for you. You can do this in a more efficient manner. If you do have a legitimate question, you get those agendas days before the meeting most of the time. Pick up the phone and ask the staff what the question, and they'll get your answer. You don't need to waste time, but counselors want the FaceTime. They want the exposure. Yeah, and, and it is, it really does waste time. It does. Uh, asking the same question six or seven different ways isn't going to necessarily change the response. And uh, asking the same question after it has been asked by one or two previous counselors uh, is, is really unfair to other people who have been sitting through the meeting. Um, it, it sounds like a very innocent or um, unimportant motion, but in reality, it, it could, if we, if we stuck to the real rules and if we had uh, put forward something that Councillor Green wanted to, ta- uh, to implement, which is five minutes per discussion, and then you kind of go to the back, you're cut off and you go to the back of the queue and the, end, the bottom of the queue and you have to wait your turn before um, you can speak again. I actually think that would be a great idea, but there would be pushback on, is this democratic? This at least will, will prevent our um, monopolizers from, from being able to exceed this five minutes, and hopefully it will have some sort of an impact on, on a much more efficient and professional meeting. We'll see. Uh, there will be pushback. People can still turn their mic. I think they can still turn their mic back on, 
and they can ask for additional time, but uh, I, I hope it doesn't. I hope they, they don't get the additional time because, as I said, five minutes. And you know, can you imagine five minutes? How long is five minutes in the broadcast world? It's a tremendous amount of time. Sure it is, and, and let's face it. It's, it can be done efficiently, but they, it goes back to a point, and I think Council Green brought this up during the discussion on this thing yesterday, Donna. Uh, the meetings themselves have to be chaired in a much more efficient manner. Uh, the House of Commons has a, a limit on question period. Mm-hmm. You're only, you're, I think it's 60 seconds. It might be mm-hmm. 90, I forget. But they cut the mic off, and you can't be heard after that. So does uh, Queen's Park. So does the Senate. So does the Congress down in the states. They all have it. City councillors just think that, well, you know, we can do whatever we want and go on as long as we want. Uh, and it's it's not an efficient use of time, and it can be done differently. But you've got to have somebody in the chair who's got the backbone to stand up and say, "These are the rules. You guys are going to live by them." And and this goes back, and this is this is something that happened a long time ago, just after the new city council was was sworn in after amalgamation. Is they decided let's rotate the chairs so everybody gets to be the captain of the football team every now and then. Not everybody around that council table is qualified to chair a meeting. That's pretty obvious. And they don't do a very good job of chairing the meetings, and that's how these things run off the rails. I agree. And again, um, uh, Councillor Green r- actually put forward, and he says he's going to bring it forward in the next council and after the, the fall election, to have a, a permanent deputy mayor who would be assigned to running these meetings and, and understands the rules, and, and that might be the way to go. It may, it may um, bring a little bit more professionalism. I want to be clear, though, not all councillors uh, ramble. There are some councillors who, who don't speak a lot, and when they do, they have succinct comments, and they're well thought out, and they make their point, and they move on. So this, this really doesn't mean that everybody around the table is an offender. I don't believe that's the case. No, not at all. Not at all. But there are, you know, the, the usual suspects, and hopefully they'll understand that this is, you know, that people don't want to hear that person talk on and on and on. Uh, give somebody else an opportunity, and let's move on to the next issue. Uh, just respect people in the gallery and people who are watching, and, of course, staff and taxpayers who are paying for those salaries. But back to what uh, Matthew had, had suggested, it may be a way of, of bringing a little bit more professionalism. You're right. Not everyone uh, can share a meeting, and it takes uh, a certain skill, uh, knowing the rules and being able to flex your muscle and, and cut people off not being afraid to, to challenge. And, and also, I think it's uh, then up to council to respect the role of the chair. But that would be something that we should consider. I don't know how many other councils do it. I do know that other councils have five-minute rules, and I think it's actually shorter than five minutes. Uh, and they, using the, the current system that we have, they have it, and, and it uh, allows the um, chair to cut the person's mic off. So we'll see. It's, it's, there's a, you know, a, a new technology that's come into place, and that will confuse some people, but there's still an opportunity now to tell people to move on. Let's get to the next speaker, and let's get to the next issue. Not everybody reads agendas to meetings. I get that. But I can tell you this, and I'm sure you can and can reinforce this, 99% of the stuff that gets asked at these meetings is in the report anyway. Yes. It's there. It's there. If counselors read it, the information is there. They're really just doing this because they want FaceTime. Uh, sometimes. I think sometimes it's clarification on certain issues. I wouldn't say it's all about FaceTime, but I'd certainly say that that plays a role uh, in some long-winded statements uh, or statements at all. But then again, and I'm guilty of trying to get things on the record, if I want 
uh, something on the record because I'm concerned about something, an issue one way or the other, I will ask it in a public forum. But again, you don't have to take five minutes to ask the question. Ask it and let your uh, staff person respond to it. Uh, sometimes those are, in my opinion anyway, it's important to get things on the record. But Or clarification of something that's in a report. I've seen you know, an error, for, caught a couple of errors, or there's something missing. That's fine. We are at, in council, and we do have committee meetings to, to accomplish things. We do have work. There is an agenda that has to be followed, and, and we do have um, motions that have to be passed and guidance to staff, direction to staff, et cetera. So there is a job. There's a reason we are in these committee meetings, but they go on so long. In fact, and I don't know if, if it's you noticed it when you were first elected, but that is the one thing that I was surprised at how many and how long these meetings last. And I covered, I covered uh, City Hall, but it, it's every meeting. Every single meeting goes on far too long. And yeah, but I can still think of some committee meetings that, that I was a member of that would be half the time if certain members of council were absent those days. As, you know, you're right, there are some serial offenders here, and, and they're not going to acknowledge that, and they're the, probably the, the, some of the seven that voted against this thing. But again, it goes back to the idea of discipline, and they have to be more disciplined about doing this. Uh, I, I look forward to the debate on this and the discussion on this, and uh, hopefully it's going to take... Uh, a, a little backbone and some courage by the counselors to actually admit that maybe there's a better way to do things. Donna, thanks so much for bringing it up. Anytime. Good luck with it. Thank you. Donna Bye-bye. Skelly, the counselor for Ward 7, of course, trying to uh, put the brakes on those long-winded uh, soliloquies by some counselors that, uh, that really, really cost taxpayers money. That's what it comes down to. And the fact that it's boring most of the time. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Right now, there is a very important two-day roundtable of 17 healthcare unions uh, that are meeting to discuss the issue of violence in the healthcare system. There are some troubling reports that, uh, that we need to address and shine the light on. In fact, in, fact, in a recent poll, 61% of nurses reported serious problems with violence in the past year. Linda Silas is the president of the Canadian Federation of Nurses, joins us here on the Bill Keller Show to discuss the issues and possible solutions, we hope. Linda, how are you this morning? Uh, very fine, Bill. Thank you. Listen, I'm, I'm so glad you guys are bringing this to light. Uh, we've had anecdotal discussions about this in the past, and uh, uh, it's an issue that, uh, that I think we need to be talking about and we need to be addressing. We've talked about safety within uh, healthcare facilities, uh, and we've had some horrific stories, of course, about how patients are being attacked. And, and those are tough enough to deal with. But let's, let's talk a little bit about the impact that it has on staff. Yeah. And, and that's the uh, reason why we call the roundtable, because it's not a nursing issue. It's not a patient issue or an employer issue. It's really the whole healthcare team and the 17 healthcare unions that are here in Ottawa today uh, and yesterday are to talk about strategies because we, it can't go on. We've had campaigns, we've had the posters, we've had the education sessions for the last 20 years. But healthcare is changing, and it's changing our acute, our hospital sector, our real pressure cookers now. And now we're uh, sending more patients in the communities and long-term care facilities, receiving home care where healthcare workers, nurses are working alone. And it's bringing up a new level of violence uh, where we have to address. That, yeah, and we have to make that distinction, I think, that uh, this is going on in facilities. But I have heard when we started talking about, for instance, home care, 
uh, the sorts of things that can go on. And you may be dealing with people that uh, are living with dementia. Uh, and to send a healthcare worker in there to, for a, a weekly visit or daily visit or whatever the case might be, knowing full well that that individual may react badly to, to treatment or some suggestions of what might be said, it could be any number of things. That person, that, that healthcare worker is actually putting themselves in peril. Yes, and it's all about being well-planned, knowing the the patients, knowing the family, and knowing the situation. And if need be, you don't go alone. And it can be with another healthcare worker, or it can be with a volunteer or family members. It all depends on the situation. Uh, and, and there are treatments that the healthcare teams have to do that are, are not pleasant and the reactions of medications and, and whatever the situation we often find in healthcare, we try to find what was the excuse. Well, there's no excuse for violence in our healthcare system. There's no excuse for violence in our community and there's no excuse not to address it. And that's what we're trying to do is humanize healthcare workers. We realize that, what, 90% of us are female, are women, and the, the violence definition is very different, but also the violence reaction. We have a gentleman here who used to work with the steel workers and used to be a member in a mine, and he said, there's no way on earth that we would accept what you women accept in the healthcare field, and it's time you put a stop to it. It's a gender issue, and we have to stop all this violence. Are, are the people that, that are in charge, are they aware of this? I mean, are, are, this has got to be on their radar, you'd think, Linda. Yes, they're aware of it, but, you know, you'll hear some employers, and I'm not uh, pinpointing because this is a pan-Canadian roundtable we have here, uh, saying, well, you know, we're not a mine, we're a hospital, we're not a bank, we're a long-term care facility, so the rules don't apply the same. And we're saying, no, the rules are the same for the protection of citizens and workers everywhere. It doesn't matter where you work. And, you know, we pointed out patients or families. Uh, sometimes it's coworkers. Sometimes it's bullying, uh, harassment coming from different level of management or different levels of the team. It is just making sure that we change the culture and that we uh, apply the legislations that do exist, which includes criminal legislation. If uh, somebody attacks you, uh, they will be criminally charged. Uh, saying all of this, we all know that the best way is to prevent, which is to training and adequate staffing, and that's what we're promoting. Let's talk about those two issues, and, and they, they both deserve uh, some time here. Let's get into the training aspect of it, first of all. Uh, I, I know I've talked in the past on this program, Linda, with some people that were in the healthcare field that simply said, you know what, I'm not doing home care. I'm not even going there. But I said, well, you know, there, there may be, oh, no, I don't care if there's openings or not. It's 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 not safe. I, you know, we don't know the protocols as well as we probably mm -hmm. should. We don't know what we're going to go through when we go in with some of these things. Uh, part of that is training and knowing what to expect and knowing how to react to certain situations. Uh, and that, 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 it falls right into into those that are, are doing the hiring, whether it's a hospital, whether it's a, a home care uh, facility, whatever the case might be. Do they get sufficient training? Do staff get sufficient training in all of those areas uh, in dealing with the public and, frankly, dealing with other staff in some cases? Mm -hmm. 
and, and we do get some training, but often the training we get is at, when you're in the situation. It's not how to pre- uh, prevent the situation or how to uh, what is acceptable and not acceptable. One interesting thing that's been discussed at the roundtable is that we need to work with our community partners, such as the police. Uh, why would a police uh, arrest a drunk driver uh, on the street but then brings him or her in the emergency rooms and if him or her attacks the nursing staff, well, all he was under the influence. Uh, that doesn't work like that. Uh, if he's violent on the street and violent in the hospital, uh, they should be the same rules. So we need to work with our partners. And the same thing in the home care. We have to have a system where people feel safe to go in uh, different areas of our our, our rural communities or in our homes, Uh, but then the partnership has to happen with the police, the regional police there, knowing if you get a call from a home care worker, either Mm -hmm. through uh, some kind of beeper alert system or cell phone, you need to go. Uh, We don't call the police or security uh, just for the fun of it. So it's building those partnerships and the respect for each profession uh, within the workplace. Is that cooperation and is that communication forthcoming? In some community, uh, we're hearing very uh, positive uh, success stories. We hear we heard about an excellent uh, program uh, yesterday about the positive catch. It doesn't have to have happened. An incident of violence didn't have to happen. But the team identify it to management. This could have happened, and those are positive catch. So those were very uh, interesting on what we could do as uh, different unions, but how could we work better with uh, employers, governments, and uh, patient communities, of course. Yeah, because if you can point to a, a template and say, hey, you know what, they're doing this in such and such a community, yeah. and it's working, uh, that makes it a lot easier for others to say, well, we can roll into that. We can do that sort of thing, too. We can establish those sorts of programs and those sort of protocols. You're doing some of the heavy lifting for them, but it's it's to the benefit of, of their staff, ultimately. Yes, and and what we provided the, the team here is a, a comparative document of all the uh, legislations across the country addressing violence in the workplace. So there, there are questions, and then, you know, when you're from PEI and you're looking, oh, this exists in Ontario, or this doesn't exist in Alberta, and why? So it's all part of the education of the, the leadership levels and saying what do we need to have in legislation, but also why does this healthcare community has this program in place and it works very well and I can't even get proper training in my facility. So those discussions are very important among activists. And the other one that I'm sure is going to get an awful lot of discussion and probably debate is staffing. It's a very contentious issue in the healthcare field and has been for years now, Linda. You know all about that. Hospitals Mm -hmm. have had their budgets cut over the years. Uh, We talked about home care. That was almost non-existent. Uh, The funding for it, anyway, for the longest time. Uh, They seem to have loosened the purse strings a little bit. Uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a floodgate yet. But time and time again, when we hear stories about violence in a facility, whether it's a long-term care facility, a hospital, whatever the case might be, it involves, well, you know what, we just don't have enough people. That's really what it comes down to. Uh, we, we only have one person for every 10 patients as opposed to every five, or whatever the case. It's yeah. ratios, it's staffing, and it's an issue that's probably not going to get solved right away, but it's a discussion that you guys have to have. 
Yes, you're very well informed on the topic, Bill. Uh, yes, staffing, it's all, you know, healthcare is a human care. We're taking care of people, so the situation changes every minute from the disease that the, our patients have to the treatment they require to the team itself. It, it, people taking care of people, so we have to make sure we have a, a well-sustained team that is well-qualified and trained and then that works together. And that, when it comes down to budget, is always a big issue. But then I question, you know, governments. We spend close to a billion dollars. Mm. We spend close to a billion dollars a year on absenteeism in the healthcare uh, in Canada. And if you look at uh, just in Ontario for um, for injury health injuries in health. Uh, sector, it's about $23 million a year. That's 10% of all injuries in healthcare, uh, uh, all injuries in Ontario are in healthcare. So just at the dollars and cents, we have to do something. And uh, again, that's why we're bringing people together. And our next phase is to bring people, which will include employers, Accreditation Canada's researchers, on how can we make our healthcare facility the healthiest um you know i I have in front of me uh 2015 injury statistics healthcare is the number one manufacturing is number two and way down but when you look at mining agricultures which you think would be very high in the injury uh scale no they're very low they're almost zilch because they have a philosophy of safety we don't have a philosophy of safety in healthcare. You know, for those in government who are often saying, well, you know, the healthcare field has to learn to find some efficiencies. Uh, we just can't keep throwing money at it. And I know you've heard that quote from, mm-hmm. from various ministers of health and premiers or premier wannabes all through mm-hmm. the years here, Linda. One of the realities, though, is that they're, they're making it more difficult and making it more costly by not increasing staffing. And I know that may sound a little bizarre to some people because they're going to say, well, you mean if I had 10 more people... That, that's salaries, wages, benefits, but if it, it lessens the burden on everybody else. And you see this, of course, in the work that you've been doing over the years, because if people get stressed out, they have to start taking leave, uh, somebody has to fill that gap, or it increases the workload for others, then they have run the possibility of getting injured. It's a violent cycle that starts here, and it costs an awful lot of money to do it that way. Yes, and, you know, we tell governments and uh, health employers all the time, you should uh, budget based on patients' needs, not on your latest budget constraints you've had. And if it's based on patient needs and if it is flexible, which means you will add and, in some situations, reduce staff uh, because they'll either go on other units or whatever, uh, you will be saving money. I mentioned to you the cost of absenteeism, so that's sick time. Mm-hmm. The cost of overtime is as high. Uh, we could hire 11,000 new, just for nurses, 11,000 new full-time employees in this country just by eliminating the uh, overtime. And that's an important... Of course, we know. That's yeah, an important overtime. note. That's a yeah. very important note. In other words, listen, listen, government... It's the same number. The money you're spending now is is okay, but use it to hire people instead of paying overtime. And you'll see yeah. that 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 ratio switch right over. And it's going to be a, a more efficient system. They just don't seem to get it. Yeah, 
And it is difficult, and, you know, most uh, ministers of health out there uh, don't want to stay too long because it's one of the hottest files, and it's one of the files that also takes 40% of the provincial budget, and everyone else is asking. But when we're talking about the health of uh, people, uh, we need to make sure it's appropriately staffed and that it is safe. Uh, and that's what we work, and we work with governments and employers across the country to make sure, one, they have the evidence, because the science on this changes almost every day. But what never change is the sicker the patients are, regardless if it is physical illness or mental illness, the more qualified personnel, and often the higher number of personnel, of health personnel they need. So that never change. Uh, so we just need to work better together to make sure that patients are safe and all healthcare uh, employees are safe. Well, we wish you good luck with this, and uh, we hope that uh, that uh, you get the ear of government officials uh, with the results of, of this uh, very important meeting that you guys are going to be holding up here. Good luck with this, Linda, and let's stay in touch as uh, this evolves. Perfect. Thank you very much, Bill. Good talking with you. Linda Silas, who is the president of the Canadian Federation of Nurses. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.